before we jump into the scripture that I wanted to, I'm going to share with you today, I uh, feel, I mean, I'm going to preface this, and I'm trying to decide the best way to preface it. I don't think there's anybody in the room that necessarily has a problem with this, but I just want it said so that there's not question or, or wondering or people trying to figure out kind of what the stance of our church is on something like we've experienced over this last 24 hours about people waiting for the rapture to come. Um, there's been a lot of jokes about it. I joined in the joking and, and jumped on board and made fun of Mr. Camping for his, and probably not the best thing for me to do. Uh, but as I spent some time on Twitter, I couldn't help but see really what a mockery it was becoming. There was a, a, a tagline or a, a thread on Twitter into the world uh, confessions and people getting ready and confessing their sin, you know. Some of, some of them were just, you know, they were just being stupid and they were being raw. Some There were some that were really funny, you know. I mean, I, I mentioned one last night to the group that was over last night. I let the dogs out, you know. Um, somebody said, I shot the sheriff, and I will confess to the deputy too, those kind of things, you know. So they were, But there was being made a mockery of, and, and it's kind of sad because really what that did is in front of the world it kind of, kind of made us look silly. There is a common thread. No matter what your view of the end times is, whether you're a dispensationalist that believes that the rapture will happen uh, and take Christians out of the world, or whether you hold to the rapture being Christ coming again and that's it, uh, whether you believe that there's a millennium or not a millennium, the truth is this. Jesus is coming back. And we can agree to that. And we can join together in that and we can celebrate that. And, and so as, as I teach and the position that I'll take and teach from is that that essential position is of utmost importance. We believe that Christ is coming to get us. He is coming back. Um, and I don't have to worry about setting a date because he saved me and he saved you. It's not that we shouldn't be looking for things to happen and hoping and longing for it but we don't have to get caught up in naming days and saying that this is when it's going to happen. And, and we don't have to open our newspaper to develop our views of theology and doctrine and, and, and hope all of these things are happening. So Jesus is coming back. In fact, the book we've been studying in, I think gives us some guidance in that in Acts chapter one, one of the very first things or one of the very last things I should say that Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven is this. I'll just read it to you in verse, starting in verse seven. <clears throat> Well, let me go back to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, is this it? Is, is the work done and is it over and now you're just going to rule? Is the kingdom once again going to be established? And they were thinking of it in terms of an earthly kingdom. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I think quite simply it's this. Times and dates, that's God's job. Witnessing to what God's done in us and what he's told us he's going to do with, with, uh, with confident expectation, witnessing to that, that's our job. We don't have to get caught up or get, get scared or nervous and, and we don't have to get... Um, uh, offended because there's people out there doing it necessarily. But we stand in a place where we represent Christ. And that's the position this church is going to take. That's the position I'm going to teach from. That's the position I'm going to challenge you to hold. I think that's the essential Christian position. 
All the others we can discuss and debate over, but this one we can't. Jesus is returning, but until he comes back, he's given us a job to do. Be his witness wherever we go. So I, I wanted to open with that. It's, I, I, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily a problem in our church, but it's sad that it's a problem in churches. And I just want to make sure that it's spoken of and, and, and explained here. So anyway, um, as we start today, we're kind of jumping into a new series. We're still going to be in Acts. Um, but as we kind of move into the summer season, I want to take some time and just do a series or a study on Christ. As we've gone through Acts, we've, we've looked in Acts and we've seen over and over different things happen. We've seen um, amazing miracles worked by, by men as God worked through them. We've seen um, patterns kind of set, you know, God's mission moving forward as God's power enables God's people to preach his message resulting in God's kingdom being grown. That's a pattern we see over and over in the book of Acts. So we've seen these things, and we've seen some principles that which we can draw from and which I have drawn from over the last several years as we've started this church and and have built into the vision of this church. What we haven't done and what I want to do over the next several weeks is stop, take some time, and go back through these passages where we've gone through Acts chapter 1 through chapter chapter 6 stop and take a look at basically the message that they're preaching. Because the message that they're preaching is not moralism. It's not, hey, come up here and be a good person. It's, it's not about a law or a set of rules to follow. It's about a man. And his name was Jesus. And if anything that we get from Peter's preaching or from Luke as he shares with us the events and the, and the things that happened in these early days of the church, It's that Jesus is the end game. He is the most important thing, the most important lesson to be learned, the most important person to be known, the most important example to be followed. It's him. And that's really what the book of Acts is about. It's not that we still see Jesus doing physical work on the earth, but we see his work continued through his people. And his work being continued is pointing back to him. It's never about Peter standing up and saying, hey, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at I've got it all figured out. He always preaches Christ and him crucified. And so I want to take some time over the next several weeks. We're going to do that. Um, why? why? Why is it important? Beyond, you know, this is, this is um, my opinion. And, uh, yeah, I, I tell you that the book of Acts points this way. Beyond that, what's the necessity of it, you know? Well, that Jesus is the most important to be known, most important man to be known. Beyond that, we live in a culture that's constantly denying who Christ is. They don't necessarily know they're denying who Christ is. They don't necessarily understand how they're denying who Christ is, but we do it. Even as believers, as people who, who, who say we trust and follow him, we tend to deny who he is. Some of us take away from his divinity Some of us take away from this position that understanding that that Jesus really is God. He is fully God. And we miss that because we focus so much on his humanity. And then there's others of us that focus less on his humanity. We like to whitewash Jesus and we like to remember Jesus as some some person that didn't necessarily live in this world, that didn't get kind of experience the, the things that really happen in this world. And obviously there's a difference. But we need to be in a place where we recognize the full teaching of Scripture. 
We need to be in a place where we're, where we're coming to, to people and able to talk about the, the, the way that Jesus revealed himself. He, talking about how scripture tells us who Jesus is. We need to be in a place where if we open a book and begin to read, we're not confused by, well, that sounds better than what that sounds like, so I'm just going to... So that we're not tossed around by every, every wind of doctrine that comes along or every wind of teaching, and that, that, that we can stand solid in one place. And it's important for us because, I mean, Jesus really is that central figure in salvation. Even the fact that I, there's a sense in me that says you need to explain why you would stop and do a Christological series demonstrates that at least whether it's perceived in me or whether it's real, it doesn't necessarily matter. But there's a demonstration that there's a real need for us to know who Jesus is, not what the world says he is, but who he says he is, what his word has revealed him to be. And so we get a picture of that in the first chapters of Acts as Peter stands up and preaches, as Luke gives us some insight into the way things worked and the things that happened. And so the next several weeks, that's what it's going to be all about. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We are going to look uh, closely at at, uh, Jesus' divinity and his humanity. And as we do that, we're going to be looking from Peter's first sermon, that Pentecost morning. You know, Peter is gathered with his friends the, the, the other apostles, and they're in this room, and the Holy Spirit comes down on them, and it's possibly that there's 120 of them gathered. <clears throat> Depends on your position, but the reality is they're gathered. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin to speak and proclaim the greatness of God in the world around them. People are coming to seeing what's, seeing what's going on, and they're hearing this in their own languages, and they start making excuses. Oh, those people are drunk. They're drunk. Like, like, alcohol really will enable you to speak in a foreign language. It doesn't work. Well, maybe a foreign language, but no one's going to understand it. But not even you, you know. Um, we call it mumbling where I'm from. But anyway, so <clears throat> here they are. They're, they're, this miracle's happening. Peter says, no, nope, that's not what you think it is. And he stands up and preaches. Acts chapter 2, verse... <clears throat> I forgot what verse... I'll tell you. If anybody should know, you would think I would. Verse 22. This is him opening his his message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter opens up just just letting them know who he's talking about. I'm talking about the guy from Nazareth. I'm talking about the guy that that just a few weeks ago, everybody was angry at. They They were angry and wanted to get rid of him, wanted to kill him. You guys turned him over to the Romans and he was crucified, he's killed, and, and it's your fault. So he opens that way, and he, and he gives them that indication. Well, then he continues to preach, and he continues to kind of build on this idea that Jesus has been attested to them by God, that Jesus in some way was, was shown by God to be who he's ultimately going to say Jesus is. And so he goes through, and he talks about how David um, 
uh, prophesied of him, how David looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, and things like that. And he comes down to the summation or the summarization of his sermon. And he says this in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as we think about it, you know, Acts isn't necessarily the place that people turn to to build their theological perspectives, to build their ideas of who Christ was. But I think it's extremely important for us to understand Peter standing up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit never went to seminary a day in his life. Never, never attended um, a, a Christian, evangelical Christian training. Never, never sat under the preachers that we listen to today and that we appreciate. Never did any of that. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and says, this Jesus, that guy from Nazareth, the one that you had killed, God looked at him, attested him, approved of him, and made him Lord and Christ. And maybe for us, that doesn't sound really, um, uh, it doesn't maybe have as big an impact as it should. But as we hear those words, God made him something. It's not that if Peter wants people to understand, I'm not proclaiming this on my own authority. I'm not making this up. I'm not the one that determined this. This is a work of God. And it's not like he's saying that God looked at Jesus and, and he was a man and he made him something. It's that God has done this work. And then very right, right, right after that, he says, has made him Lord and Christ. And here's the important part that we need to get that we, we can't necessarily see in our English translations in, in the culture we sit in. The word that's translated Lord is curios. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to me either. It's just a Greek word, right? Except that that Greek word refers to supremacy and authority, to a place of prominence and, and ruling. It's also the word that if you look through the Scripture, even the Greek Old Testament, you know, the, most, the, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. By the time that Jesus came along, they had translated it to Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, all of the, all, I think it's like 6,814 times, the word Yahweh, which is God's name in Hebrew, is translated kuros. So we have this word, this, this, this word for us that just sounds like some Greek words, Latin to me, you know. But those people listening, those people that would have heard, those people that Peter was preaching to, heard something that probably was part of why some of them were so angry. Because Peter is putting Jesus in a place that they don't want him to be. He's speaking of his divinity. He's speaking of the fact that, that he's more than just a mere man. This Jesus who you killed was God. And there's other places in the scripture where this word would be used and, and affirms this perspective and this point. Let me just, let me just read some to you. Luke 2.11. And Peter, he didn't come up with this on his own. It wasn't something that he just decided. This is the message before Jesus was even really born. This was the message that was being proclaimed in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. As the angels proclaimed his birth, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Kuros. Matthew 3, 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Christ was ever born. 700 years before, before anything like, before his life was even 
thought of. 700 years earlier than Christ, Isaiah sits down and writes, speaking of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Kuros, make his path straight. Acts chapter 2, verse 34, we just back up into Peter's sermon. And Peter says this, quoting Psalm 110, and speaking of some of the things that David had, had said, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And he's talking about God speaking to God. It's crazy. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But God spoke to God and made, set him down and, and, and made everything submissive to him. Gives him authority of, over all things. David's not talking about some other king that rules. He's talking about God the Father giving authority to God the Son. Jesus is God, fully God. It's pretty amazing to think about. It's a big, there's huge implications that come with it. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's good. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never, will have no end. That paragraph refers to Jesus Christ. He's God. Creator. Sustainer. I mean, as we look at him in comparison to the Trinity, he's not sovereign father. He submits to the authority of God the Father, but fully God. Now think of the implications. Think about what this means. He's rightful to demand our submission. He is right to assume he has authority. So it doesn't matter if the people that we know or even if we do this, it doesn't matter if we even recognize his authority. Now just hang with me a little bit because I think it's important that we recognize his authority. But it doesn't matter. It's not our recognition of his authority that gives it to him. It's not us looking at God and saying, God, I recognize your authority so you can rule over me. It's not us looking at Jesus and saying, you said you're the only way, so I'm going to trust that so that makes it right. You see, Jesus is rightful in his authority because he's God. He gets to say, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. And not the only way. He said, I am the way. That's the Seth version. I am the way. He gets to say that. He gets to say that no one comes to the Father but through me. He gets to say that. He gets to say that, that, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. He gets to say that the world's going to be round. He's the one that's going to hold it all together. It's Him. Our Christ, Jesus, our Lord, our God. He's right in, in claiming authority. He's right in giving commands. He's right in telling His apostles, quit worrying about the dates. Sorry, I didn't spit on you. Quit worrying about the dates. Quit being so concerned about that. But when power comes on you, get up and give my witness. Be my witness. Proclaim me. 
He's right to tell people to focus on him. He's right to, to stand before Thomas, who Thomas is like, man, there's no way I'm going to believe in a risen Lord. He's right to stand before him and accept worship. He belongs in that place because he is God. And honestly, there's really no more important thing than we can do than to recognize that. You see, because Jesus isn't our boyfriend. He's not our, our best bud that hangs out with. And yes, I know there's scripture that talks about him being our friend, and I believe it. He's a companion. He's, he, he brings us comfort. He cares for us. He loves us. But we can never lose sight of this fact. He is God. And He deserves our honor and our adoration. You see, it's all about this. The whole vision of our church, the whole emphasis of our church is this. Worship Him. Worship Him. There's so many other things in life that we get caught up in and get, get, get tied down by. We look around and we, oh, and I love this thing and I want to be involved in it. And we give ourselves to it. We, we, we look at things in the world and think, oh, that's going to satisfy me. That's going to, that is going to make me happy. That, that, that thing, that, that, that thing of this world, I think it's going to give me comfort. We give ourselves to these things. But the call is, is to recognize that, that Jesus is the only one that this stuff comes in. The only one in which we can find security. The only one in which we can find comfort, true comfort, lasting comfort. The only one in which we can find true acceptance. See, it's in Him. He's the God that looks at us and says, in spite of who you are, I accept you. He's the one that looks at us and says that if you'll trust in me, seek my kingdom. All the other things will be taken care of. They'll all be added to you. You don't have to worry and be anxious. You don't have to be in control because Jesus is in control. You see, He's God. And the greatest thing for us to do, the most important thing for us to do in our lives, is, is, is not just learn about Him, but as we learn about Him, turn and worship Him. I want you to have a good theology of who Jesus is. But more than a good theology of who Jesus is, I want your theology to lead you to worship and adore and love Jesus. See, because I'm convinced. I'm convinced because I've seen it happen over and over and over. And I believe it's the, the teaching in the New Testament. That as we come to this place where we love Jesus and we adore Jesus and, and He is in a proper place in our life and the perspective is right and He is being worshipped, that so many other things just fall into place. And that rather than living up to some expectation that we think He has for us, we rest in His grace that He's shown us. See, rather than, rather than feeling like we've got to control everything, rather than feeling like every situation has to be controlled by us, we can rest in His sovereignty and power. We, we don't have to have all the answers because we know the one that does. We don't have to be the strongest because we know the one that is. I can trust Him. I can adore Him. I can honor Him. I don't, I don't have to be the smartest guy in the world. He, he loves me and He accepts me. And I think when we come to realize that and begin to find our identity in Him and find our strength in Him and stand in Him, 
that the things that we do then will not be out of some obligation or some debt that we owe back to Him, but because we love Him so much. And we want our lives to honor Him. We want our lives to please Him. Not to earn His love, but out of His love, because of His love. You see, that will be, become the motivation. You see, this idea of worship, it's not about coming here and singing songs for, for 15 or 20 minutes and going on about our business. It's about our entire life being lived in light of this truth. Jesus is God and He deserves our worship. He deserves the rightful place in our lives. In fact, it's this place really that everything kind of goes wrong. Everything kind of falls apart at this point of worship, at this point of of recognition of who who He is. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, giving kind of a history of man, points out for us what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's not a specific revelation. It's not like we get to know everything about God by looking at creation, but there's certain things that are evident. Because ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God. But they became futile in their thinking. You see the change? You see the shift? No one stands with an excuse because God's made himself known. And they thought they were wise. But they changed the truth of God for a lie. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The result? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images of, or for, excuse me, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the reality is, is that as, as that goes on, is that Paul is going to just give us a list of how everything fell apart as people worship things other than God. Every error in our life, every sin of our life proceeds from this truth. We're not recognizing the divinity of our Christ. We're not recognizing God as who he has revealed himself to be. We are not worshiping him. We've chosen to accept some other thing in his place. And that's why we emphasize worship. That's why it's so important that we understand that he is rightfully in a place of prominence. He deserves to be exalted. He deserves to be adored. He deserves to be loved. And really, I mean, the second part of this, this whole message just feeds that. It's not just that he, he deserves it and says, oh, I demand it, although he has every right to. The great news is this, is that he didn't stay distant. He didn't stay separated from us. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, worship me. You figure it out on your own and you worship me. He didn't do that. You see, the reason that Peter's preaching about Christ as Lord is because he knew Christ the man. The reason that he looks at Jesus and says, or, or, or looks back on Jesus and thinks of him and preaches of him as this Jesus, the one that was born in Nazareth, is because Jesus 
walk the face of the earth. You see, Jesus was a man. He was born much like the rest of us. He didn't have a real daddy. It's not, he wasn't a bastard. He didn't have a fleshly daddy. He was God's son. The Holy Spirit came on, Ma- on Mary. And this miracle happened. And God made Mary pregnant with God. The son. It's crazy. A crazy story. So Mary carries this baby for nine months. She had labor pains like every other mother. I'm sure that it hurt just like every other mother. And she had a baby. And that baby was flesh and blood and bone. Had organs. They, they probably looked for ten fingers and toes just like every, uh, every excited new parent does. You know, they probably wanted a cute baby just like every new parent does. And even if they're ugly, they would have, you know, that's what we do. Oh, they're so cute. There's something special about this baby. His birth was announced by angels. Shepherds hanging out in in a field hear this story from angels hovering over them in the sky. There's something special happened tonight. This baby, a real flesh and blood baby is born and he's Christ the Lord. Kuros. You see, God didn't stay distant. He came to be here with us. And this baby grew up to be a little boy. And we don't get a lot of stories from his youth, but, but we have enough from Matthew and Luke in his, in his birth and in his growth that we can understand that that Jesus was much like other boys. The reality is that, you know, there was difference. He's sitting down and he's teaching men that are twice his age, that are learned. He sits in a temple and he tells them stuff. And they're like, where does he learn it? How does he know it? So there's certainly a difference, but it's because he's not just simply a man, but because he's a God man. The reality is, is that from the time he was an infant to the time he was sitting in that temple teaching those rabbis, he had to be potty trained. He had to learn when to go pee and when to go poo, just like the rest of us. He did it as an adult. He was a man. He dealt with emotion. He dealt with physical pain. He was tempted in every way that we are. He was a man. Philippians says it this way. And I really would have thought that maybe as I've shared Philippians so much that uh, you guys could recite this to me. So it's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Can you guys recite that? No, I'm just kidding. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Well, I'm going to forget it. Now I've teased you and I'm going to forget it. When Paul is talking about, let me, let me give you some context. Paul is talking to the church about being humble, staying together in unity and being humble. He says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's telling them, have this mind among yourselves. Be humble. Think this way. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, as believers, we have this mind. Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, remember that line, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This form is carrying through. Form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He's in the form of God and in the form of man. Paul is helping us see that he's got two natures. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He deserves worship. He deserves our adoration. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know where Jesus gets to be worshipped? Everywhere. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And really specifically that's referring to a time when it will be revealed. The, the, the blinders will be lifted. Everybody will recognize it and whether they trusted it in this life or not, they will recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. And every knee should bow, or every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the difficulty. In our purified way of thinking, we don't like to think of Jesus as a man. But we need to think of Jesus as a man. See, the, the danger, the danger is not over-humanizing Christ, but it's under-deifying Christ, taking away from His deity. The danger is not simply in just recognizing only God or, or the divinity of Christ. The danger is not recognizing enough the humanity of Christ. In 451 AD, there was a council of Chalcedon. And this council was dealing with heresies about Jesus. They were dealing with his identity and who he was, who they had known him to be from from the apostles' time, who they had been taught that Jesus was. And they were dealing with these heresies. And as the council finished, the summary of of their council was this, that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. And it It's not that we need to just rely on those councils. I mean, those councils, they helped develop our theology through history because they were dealing with the questions that rose and they were looking at Scripture. But that's what Scripture teaches. I mean, think about it here in Acts. Peter not standing up to give a theology lesson, not saying, hey, I'm going to sit down and teach you a class about Jesus. He stands up to preach a message. And his message is this. Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is God. But we saw Him in the flesh. We knew Him. We walked with Him. We talked with Him. We learned from Him. We followed Him. He was a man born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth. He's the God-man. And the implications of this are still mind-boggling and blowing. What does it mean that Jesus is a man? What is it? What's the implication of all of that? I mean, consider it. It's not just that, it's not just that He is, oh, well, He's going to be a cool dude and, and, and we can... You know, we can get to know Him. But some of the implications I I think of, by taking this nature, by taking on this nature, we we can recognize 
and not downplay it. We, 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 can, we can live in it and understand it to be this. He gets us. He understands us. Not just from a sense of He's Creator. He, he understands the struggles we face. He's lived this life. He's dealt with the things we deal with. He's experienced them. He's walked among us. John 1 tells us, John 1, uh, 1 through 3, it tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Well, that's not John. The Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John opens his book with this, with, 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 with this thesis. I want you to get this. I want you to understand this. He's always been. He's always existed. He's always been here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Well, what in the heck is the Word? He tells us in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the uh, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, in this humanity, in, the, in taking on this nature, what Jesus did for us was come and walk among us and reveal God to us. You see, it's it's His expression of Himself to us. If 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 not for Jesus. If not for his life and the way that God decided to do this, we would have imaginings of a God that's out in creation somewhere. The Spirit doesn't, doesn't really mean much to us. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to grasp. But as we look at Jesus, he is an expression of God's love, his grace, his truth. He's an expression of who God is so that we can see and better know God. You see, the Bible tells us as we come to know Jesus, we know the Father. As we worship Jesus, we worship the Father. That's the beauty of this. Further implications of this is that now we don't just have a Savior that looks on our suffering and with, with disdain or doesn't care. But in His humanity, He suffered for us. God. God. I'm talking Creator God who deserves worship and honor and adoration, he, come, he came and He put on flesh and He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, this is an amazing thing. It's a crazy story. And really, when you think about it, Christians, I guess we could probably be told by people that we're crazy. It's a crazy story. An eternal God came and put on flesh and He walked among us died and suffered for us. Man, that that just makes me want to love Him more. Makes me want my life to count for Him more. Makes me want to, to, to let Him see my adoration for Him more. Because I recognize that the suffering on the cross wasn't just simply the pain of the nails. It wasn't just the scourging that He dreaded as He knelt before His Father and said, if there is any other way let this cup pass from me. 
You see, this is eternal God. Oh, a, a holy God who took on this nature. He who knew no sin then became sin. You see, He died in our place and He took our sin. And that's the most gruesome of all things is this eternally perfect, righteous, holy God allowed, him to, allowed Himself to absorb the suffering of sin. That is the Christian message. That's why it's so important that we get it. It's crazy and unbelievable. But it's the truth that God's shown us. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Peter, as he was confronted with that question, he looked at those Jews as they were as he preaches to them and tells them that this guy that you killed was God. And they're cut to the heart. I mean, they are they are they are depressed, they are hurt, they're saddened. What do we do? They say. He says, Repent and be baptized. Look at your life. Consider the places that you find your acceptance. Consider the places you find your security or the the, the ways that you fight for control. Those things that bring you comfort. And recognize that those are idols in your life. They are a fallen image. Only He deserves to be in that place. God, who became flesh and made it possible for us to know eternal life. It's important that we get this It's the foundation of all that we believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son. I thank you for the truth of the story. I thank you for what it means for us today, even 2,000 years later, having been separated separated from it by time. But it's just as significant, just as impactful, just as real and true today. I thank you for it. I pray, God, that as we as we come and just think about this again, I know this is not new stuff for us to think about, but as we think about it again, that we be challenged to look at the idols of our life, those things that that make us happy, to entertain us, that that make us feel loved those things that that make us feel safe and that we would displace them, that we turn from them and trust in you alone. Pray, God, that as we do this, that our theology wouldn't lead us just to be pharisaical, but it would lead us to doxology, to worship, adoration, a life lived in gratitude for the things that you've done, for the ways that you've worked, for simply who you are. You are God. May we just be moved by that and love you because of that. And may we stand, Father, as a, as a community of believers and shine brightly in the world as we stand and worship that people would recognize the distinction in our life that we're not simply Christians by word alone 
but by the very work of you in and through our lives. That you would shine from us. That your son would be praised and glorified in us, in our words, and in our actions. And that this truth, the truth that says you came to save us, would be that thing that's most important in our conversations with people we know and the, and the friends that we have. And that it would be that truth, that gospel truth that motivates us then to move and order the rest of our lives. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we respond to the truth that God came to save us? We submit. We follow him in obedience. We honor him. We worship him. I don't know what he's doing in your life. We always come to this point where we respond. So consider how he's speaking to you, how he's working in your life. And follow him and respond to him. Let's sing. Thank you.